Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you might take all distractions from us. Uh, you know the things that bear in upon us, the things that have happened this day, the things that are to happen over the weekend, our relationships, our financial situation, whatever it is that might press in upon us and distract us from hearing your word, we pray that you might keep those things from us, help us to hear what you would say to us, and give us such a view of what you are doing and who it is who loves us, that we might give you the worship and the adoration and the obedience that is your due. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my daughter Rachel loves the stars. Um, she has her own telescope and she loves to look at the night sky. A couple of years ago, uh, for her birthday, she went to the Sydney Observatory at night to see what she could see. But she didn't get to see anywhere near as much as she'd hoped she would see. There was too much city light, not enough darkness. The light of the stars is apparently obscured in some way by the reflection of the lights of the buildings and the street lamps and the other things all around. So once her HSC exams are over in a few weeks' time, uh, Rachel is planning a trip with her mum to Coonabarabran. And uh, she wants to look through the telescope there at night. Without the city light, she expects to see far more. The contrast of the darkness will enable her to see the light of many, many more stars. And even those stars that she could see back here in Sydney will look much better, much clearer, uh, will have much more definition because of the darker backdrop. Now, something like that is happening in Matthew's Gospel as we move through chapter 14. As we saw last week, the first half provides us with an extraordinarily dark backdrop. It's one of the most gruesome stories in the New Testament. The central character, Herod Antipas, is an ugly character. He's self-indulgent to the core. He'd taken his own brother's wife. He'd showed a little bit too much interest in his early teenage stepdaughter's dance in front of his guests. He wants to be seen as a strong man, but the reality is he was pitifully weak. He liked to call himself king, but in reality he was only a tetrarch, the ruler of a little bit. He was the kind of man you might snigger at behind his back, but only behind his back. So pretentious, but it was all empty. So cruel, but with no real power. The tyrant and bully who was manipulated and pushed around by his wife and even by that little girl. And he brutally killed the last of the Old Testament prophets because he'd made a rash promise to his stepdaughter in front of his guests. And the ugly, self-indulgent brutality that masked massive insecurity and weakness in King Herod provides the dark backdrop that allows us to see much better much more clearly and with much more detailed definition, the gentleness and glory and generosity of Jesus. He is a different sort of king. Herod ruled with terror and cruelty. The rule of Jesus is something different altogether. With compassion and yet with sovereign authority, 
he extravagantly provides for his people. Well, having looked at one incident in a bit of detail last week, this morning I want to pull back the focus and look briefly at the three scenes that make up the rest of Matthew 14 and identify one thing in each which defines this king and his kingship, the kingship of the Messiah, the feeding of the 5,000, the walk on the water, the healings at Gennesaret. And friends, the king on whom the spotlight falls in these verses stands in such stark contrast to Herod Antipas. He provides and protects. He controls and he cares. He saves and he serves. So the first, the very familiar feeding of the 5,000. From verse 13, and when he heard, Jesus withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. When they heard, the crowd followed him on foot from the city. When he came ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. When evening came, the disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place and the hour's already late. Dismiss the crowd so that they might go into the villages and buy themselves food. Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have nothing here except five loaves and two fish. He said, bring them here to me. And he commanded the crowd to sit down on the grass. Then taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed them and broke them and gave the bread to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowd and everyone ate and was satisfied. And they took up the abundance of fragments, 12 baskets full. And those who ate were about 5,000, apart from women and children. It's a story that tells of an extravagant provision for the physical needs of those who followed Jesus. The crowd had seen him leave after he had heard the fate of John the Baptist. Jesus had withdrawn from where he'd been in order to be alone, by himself in a deserted place. It was, as we saw last time, a significant moment for Jesus. The forerunner killed, and Jesus knew what came next. He understood that before long, he would head towards Jerusalem, and there, something more than what had happened to John awaited him. He wanted to withdraw and to pray. We'll see a little later he didn't give up on that plan even if it didn't quite work out that way at first. He would withdraw again in a little while into the hills by himself to pray in verse 23. But upon reaching the deserted place where he intended to be by himself he found the crowd had arrived there first. They'd been following along the shoreline and they'd gathered right where Jesus would be leaving the boat. And you have to realise that this would be a sizeable crowd. We are told that there are about 5,000 men and then women and children. It's entirely possible that there would have been in the vicinity of 10 to 20,000 people crowded in by the side of the lake to see Jesus, bringing their sick to be healed by Jesus. And this is the extraordinary thing we need to see at this moment. Jesus' reaction to the crowd 
is not one of annoyance. He's not angry that his plans have been thwarted. You know that feeling, don't you? Uh, when you plan for things to happen in a particular way, you've made an effort, you've anticipated the result, and then the very thing you were wanting to do just slips through your fingers like sand. Ever been a little annoyed when something like that happens? Is it only me? But what we see in Jesus is something entirely different. We are told that when he saw that crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. The word used to describe Jesus' reaction is that strong, almost visceral, gut-wrenching care that means you just can't turn away. He saw their need and he had compassion and he healed their sick. And what an astonishing contrast that is to the behaviour we'd seen just a few verses earlier from Herod Antipas. Herod the shallow, the petty, the self-interested and violent. Jesus, the one who sees this crowd and has compassion. Friends, the king you follow, the king I follow, is like that. Powerfully, wonderfully compassionate. He sees need and he doesn't look away. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't drive over the top of it to pursue his own agenda. He sees and he knows and he cares and he acts. The miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is one of the most familiar incidents from the Gospels. It's a moment when the disciples seem impatient. They don't have the resources. There's just no way to feed such a crowd with the meagre five loaves and two fish that they have between them. And it's a moment which echoes the generous provision of God himself throughout the Old and New Testaments. For you see, it is God who lavishly, lavishly provides for his people when they have nothing to contribute. God feeding his people with manna and quail in the wilderness in Exodus 16. They had no resources of their own. Yet he provided enough for each day and spring water from the rock as well. The great promise of Isaiah 25 that on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, an extravagant provision that points to the generosity and grace of God for all peoples. The great wedding banquet of the Messiah that Jesus would speak about later in this gospel and is pictured in the book of Revelation. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Come gather for the great supper of God. This is a significant pointer here to just who it was they had in front of them. He is the God who provides. He is the provision of God. And when God provides, he doesn't hold back. There is more left over at the end of this food distribution than there was at the beginning. It is inexplicable. It has no natural explanation. But at the end of it, everyone ate and was satisfied. All 5,000 men and the women and children. 
You see, this is the Messiah, and this is just the appetizer. The main course is still to come. But I want you to notice the character of the one who does this, the one who has compassion and who puts aside his own need at the moment to meet the need of the crowd, the one who responds to the disciples' insistence that it's time for them to leave now with, they do not need to go away, the one who acts again to meet their need their physical hunger, just like their physical sicknesses, were not a matter of indifference to him. He provides because he is so utterly and radically for them, for us. And when it's over, there is more at the end than there was at the beginning. Twelve baskets full. I think we're meant to notice that. Five loaves and two fish. There's only seven items to begin with yet 12 basketfuls at the end, and everyone satisfied. Realise the compassion of this king, the extraordinary, truly wonderful compassion of our king, and the luxurious birthday feast of Herod Antipas, the scene of shallow self-interest and utter brutality, only serves to highlight who it is we have come to serve. Which brings us to the second of these incidents, the walking on the water, from verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And when he had dismissed the crowd, Jesus went up into the hills by himself to pray. When night came, he was there alone. The boat was already many stadia from the land and they were being tossed by the waves for the wind was against them. And at the fourth watch of the night... He came to them, walking on the sea. When his disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out from fear. Immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is me. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And getting out of the boat, Peter walked on the water and came to Jesus. But seeing the wind, he grew afraid. And as he started sinking, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him. And he said, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. And once again, it's a story that we know well, don't we? The disciples caught in a storm, the wind against them, the waves lashing the little boat, the chaos of the waters beginning to threaten. And in the midst of it, unfazed by the chaos and the wind and the waves, Jesus walks on the water towards them. It is yet again an indication of who it is they're following. Job had spoken of the greatness of God in terms like this, God alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waters of the sea. Asaph had written in Psalm 77 that your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen, with immediate reference to the Exodus. The prophet Habakkuk spoke of how God trampled the sea with his horses. The chaos does not overwhelm him. 
By walking on the sea, he shows that he is Lord. And at the end of this incident, those in the boat realised that, even if only for a moment, those in the boat worshipped him and said, truly this is, truly you are the Son of God. But once again, I want to narrow in on the character of the one who walked on the sea that day. And especially to see that character in the one part of the story that appears only here in Matthew, not in the account of the event in the other Gospels. The, the exchange with Peter in verses 28 to 32. Those familiar with the whole of the Gospel story will see the pattern of Peter's behaviour. Quite a few times he speaks first and thinks afterwards on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's great that we're here. Let's build three tabernacles and all that. When Jesus wipes the feet of his disciples, no, you're never going to wipe my feet. And then a moment later, well, then not just my feet, but all of me. And pathetically, the protest, he would never deny Jesus. He would die first. And then he does deny Jesus three times. Here it is again, Peter shooting his mouth off, wanting to make the most of the moment. But take your eyes off Peter for a moment and look at Jesus. At Peter's impetuous request, he just says, come. When Peter begins to be overwhelmed and cries out, Lord, save me, Jesus stretches out his hand and takes hold of him. And I don't think the words that come next are a fierce rebuke at all. They're still on the water together. Jesus has told Peter, he's taken hold of Peter, he's He's still supporting him. He's preventing the chaos from enveloping him and taking him under. They are instead the words of one who wants to help Peter, to save Peter. Oh, you man of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you hesitate? And do you think that Jesus was surprised by what had happened? Do you think he did not know that Peter wasn't quite there yet? His attention could still too easily be drawn away from the Lord towards the storm. And yet he still says, come. And he still stretches out his hand and takes hold of him and rescues him. And he still teaches him with the question, oh man of little faith, why did you hesitate? The majestic lordship of the one who tramples the water and is the master of creation but whose concern is in more than one way to save Peter. We get a glimpse of the rule of this king. Not, not phased by the wind or the waves or the chaos on the sea, yet ruling in a way that reaches out to Peter to save him, to grow him, to show him what's next. That's our king. And unlike Herod, isn't he truly magnificent? And though I don't think they understood all they were saying at that moment, Jesus and Peter safely in the boat, the wind ceases, and those who are there worship him and say, truly you are the Son of God. Well, finally, finally the little scene at the end, when they've arrived back on shore, back at Gennesaret from verse 34. Crossing over, they came to the land of Gennesaret, and the men of that place recognised him and sent into the whole of that region and brought to him all who were sick. And they begged him that they might just touch the fringe of his garment. And those who touched it were made well. 
It's a brief record and it's a strange one. Jesus doesn't utter a word. Not yet, anyway. We have plenty to say uh, in that place in the next chapter. The people in this place gather quickly when they realise he's there and just like the woman with the hemorrhage earlier in the gospel, they just want to touch the edge of his tunic. That'll be enough. If they know anything, they know that he's that powerful. Disease, any disease, cannot withstand him. Even those which would make you unclean, uh, which would prevent you from coming before him directly out in the open. I might not have the confidence to ask, but if I just touch the edge of his tunic as he passes by, that'll be enough. That was enough for the woman with the hemorrhage. That'll be enough for us. And so all who touched him are healed. Indiscriminate generosity. The God who sends the rain on the wicked and the just. Lavishly, abundantly, he has provided again. He doesn't stop them from touching him. He asks nothing of them. We're not told that he uttered a word. What we have here in this last incident is the same attitude we encountered in the first. He saw a great crowd and had compassion on them and healed their sick. And they begged him that they might just touch the fringe of his garment. And those who touched it were made well. Friends, against the darkness of Herod Antipas, his weakness and his cruelty, his blatant self-interest and his petty preoccupation with his own reputation, we see a different kind of kingship in these three incidents. Our king has compassion, not just a superficial, sentimental, momentary interest, but the deep and enduring commitment to act, to meet the need of his people. He saw the hunger of the crowd and provided in an astonishing way. All ate and were satisfied, and there was more left over at the end than there was at the beginning. He saw the fear of the disciples and the hesitation of Peter, and he stretched out his hand, saved him, and gently exposed his real need. He answered the urgent prayer, Lord, save me. And he saw the desperation of the people from Gennesaret and surrounding regions, and all who just touched the edge of his garment were healed. He is the sovereign Lord who does what only God can do. God's great provision, God's mastery of the chaos, God's power to save, God's unlimited capacity to impact the lives of men and women, his indiscriminate generosity but he is the sovereign, sovereign Lord who exercises that rule, that kingship, that power with extraordinary kindness, gentleness and compassion. And aren't you glad he is our king? The one who provides and who saves and who invites all to come. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this picture of our Saviour, of our King, of the one who calls us to follow him.
and we would serve him, knowing the goodness of his rule. Please help us to do so for Jesus' sake.